Good evening and welcome. You're watching Fred Paul on ADH TV, filling in for Alan Jones while he's recovering from surgery. Well, it used to be a joke that if you proposed to do something really, really stupid, something utterly pointless, it was like taking coal to Newcastle. Well, that is what West Australian Premier Mark McGowan is going to do at great expense to the people of WA. Now that his premature plan to wean the state off coal-fired power will soon cause some parts of his state to have no power at all. Except in his case, it won't be taking coal to Newcastle, it will be taking coal to Collie, the town south of Perth adjacent to the state's only two coal mines. For generations, since 1927 to be precise, coal from Collie has kept the lights on in Western Australia without any complaint from people or industries. But not anymore. As all leftist politicians know, the road to political popularity these days is paved with unmined coal deposits. And McGowan, one of the most popular politicians in the nation, is dancing down that road like Kylie Minogue on her way to the Mardi Gras. The whole thing makes so much sense. Just last June, McGowan said the massive uptake of rooftop, rooftop solar panels across the state had led to excess power in the grid, which added to maintenance and generation costs that were ultimately borne by consumers. So to save them that cost, he announced he was going to spend $3.8 billion upgrading the system. Not sure how much it, would, it cost the existing system to generate an excess amount of energy, but $3.8 to replace it does sound a little excessive. And what's he upgrading the system to? Well, that would be wind, solar, batteries, and a whole new network of wires connecting them all. He reassured the good people of Western Australia, quote, the transition will be implemented in a sensible, consultative manner with long lead times to ensure workers and the wider community can plan for the future. Sounds like a plan, right? <laughs> Not really. McGowan yesterday admitted that the state will likely need to import coal from another state, most likely New South Wales, to keep things running. And even then, he's not sure there won't be blackouts. His energy minister, Bill Johnston, told the ABC yesterday that the power grid will be monitored during this summer, which is expected to be hotter than usual. If an area is seen to be using too much energy, residents will receive a text telling them to turn down their air conditioners or risk suffering a blackout. This is what West Australians get for their energy bills, which have risen by 44% in the past 22 months, sorry, past 12 months. But West Australians are not the only people paying the price for idiotic idealism in the otherwise perfectly mundane field of government regulated energy production. New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane, who despite being in the Liberal Party, is one of the most ardent anti-coal politicians in the nation, is also behind the push to transition to renewables. And as a result, power prices are going up in New South Wales too. Keane's response is to throw more taxpayer money at subsidies for stressed consumers. This is what he calls 
putting downward pressure on energy bills. Keane would never blame his own green idealism for the problems being faced in New South Wales. Instead, he's blaming McGowan for not sending WA gas at cheap prices to the East Coast. Here's a quote. Just like WA wants New South Wales taxpayers to prop them up by taking our GST, New South Wales families expect WA to support them during this energy crisis. Unquote. Well, McGowan hits straight back. Quote, Western Australia supported the New South Wales government during the pandemic by keeping our main export industries open and directly helping fund the massive bailout packages poured into New South Wales by the Commonwealth. Unquote. This is two grown men we're talking about here. McGowan wants Keane's coal. Keane wants McGowan's gas. And instead of getting on the phone and striking a deal, they're taking juvenile pot shots at each other in the media. What a bunch of clowns. And the most pathetic aspect of it is that this is all because every government in Australia, federal and state, is obsessed with pushing the nation into expensive, unreliable energy while we reduce our use of the coal, gas, oil and uranium that sits in abundance in our own backyard. Really, by comparison, taking coal to Newcastle would be a work of genius. Well, if the nation's most prominent leftists, including the Prime Minister and all of his federal cabinet ministers are to be believed, Australia is facing two constitutional crises at the moment. The first and most urgent of the two is that we need to form a separate chamber of parliament to advise the existing parliament on matters pertaining to the descendants of those who inhabited Australia before the arrival of the first fleet 234 years ago. The reason for this is not being fully explained, so allow me to do it for them. The chamber is necessary because soon after 1967, when Australians voted in a referendum almost unanimously to treat their Indigenous brothers and sisters as equal citizens, a resistance to that consensus was born. Let's call it the Aboriginal industry, because that's what it is. This industry is more than any other aspect of Australian culture and law responsible for the endlessly increasing deprivation of a minority of unassimilated Indigenous people suffer today. The voice to Parliament might seem like affirmative action, but it is the opposite. It will only further entrench the victim, the victim mentality that keeps outback Aborigines oppressed and inner city Aborigines in cushy jobs as lobbyists and agitators. To even propose such a, a divisive change to our constitution goes against the tenor of our times. In the United States, the Supreme Court is on the verge of striking down affirmative action that gives minorities lower thresholds for university entrance, which will hopefully in turn lead to the demise of all affirmative action and expose it for what it is, oppression disguised as paternalism. The voice to parliament is no different. Australian people can see right through this and will vote overwhelmingly to reject this pointless distraction should the Albanese government ever be foolish enough to present it. 
The second crisis is that we simply must become a republic. Outgoing chair of the Australian Republican movement, Peter Fitzsimons, recently told the Sitting Morning Herald it was, quote, wonderful to have, for the first time in over a quarter of a century, the government of the day pushing for, for this most basic of all causes, unquote. Pull the other one, Pete. It plays God save the king. There is nothing basic about changing our constitution, especially if that change introduces political rivalry to the apolitical office of head of state. And as long as Republicans continue to pretend their proposals are benign, their efforts too will be rejected by the Australian people. But while it is reassuring to know that these two confected crises are destined to fail, we must remind ourselves that there is a genuine constitutional, constitutional crisis going on right now. One the elites seem to care little about. It is the disturbing extent to which our constitutional checks and balances were compromised. Some might say trashed by megalomaniacal opportunists during the two years of the COVID pandemic. My next guest, David Flint, says we need to restore these checks and balances to ensure our politicians never repeat the overreach they exercised during the pandemic. Because as we all know, if we give them the chance, they will surely take it. David joins me now. David, welcome. Thank you. Firstly, there are two checks and balances that should have applied during the COVID lockdowns. Executive Council and Disallowance. Now let's go through them separately. Federal Executive Council, which has an equivalent at the state level, technically consists of all current and former ministers and assistant ministers. In practice, a meeting of Federal Executive can consist of two ministers and the Governor-General. Its purpose is to ratify or reject decisions made by a minister. Is that a fair description, David? That's a reasonable description. And of course, what that ensures that is that there is a proper process, that instead of the minister making a regulation just at, in the middle of the night, without even considering whether he's going beyond the power of making that regulation, here we have a situation where the governor or governor general must ensure that he has or she has the power to do what is being proposed. And if any conditions on the exercise of that power have been uh, fulfilled, he has to or she has to be sure of that. And in addition, there should be an explanatory memorandum setting out why this regulation is being made, and that should normally be made public. It shouldn't be secret. And the role of the governor, the role of the governor general is to ensure that this proper process is observed. So you don't get the situation which we had, for example, in New South Wales, when suddenly, suddenly the minister decided during COVID to close down the whole building industry in New South Wales and it went on for two weeks. And the chief health officer said, well, she didn't recommend it. We don't know even now why that was recommended. So just to clarify, though, just to take it a step back, Executive Council, it, the, for decisions of ministers to be 
uh, enacted or, or, or allowed, they first have to go through executive council and this is a routine part of the process. That's correct, isn't it? Well, this was the normal process and it was the normal process until a few years ago. Then they started passing acts of parliament, giving the minister the direct power to make regulations. It's an extraordinary thing to do, probably in breach of the federal constitution because the constitution says that the executive power is vested in the queen and exercisable by the governor general. It doesn't say it's exercisable exercisable by ministers. Okay. And in fact, legislation so, has provided for that. And about 20% or so or more of the big regulations made at the federal level, decisions under regulations and so on, were made directly by ministers. So you mentioned the instance of the building industry in New South Wales. What are some of the other egregious examples of ministers sidestepping the Executive Council and imposing what some might call tyrannical conditions on the population. Well, for example, at the federal level, and this was done under a federal statute, the Biosecurity Act, the minister decided that uh, we couldn't leave Australia when it was perfectly safe to do so. The power in the act for the minister to do that, and it should really be the governor general, but the power to, for the minister to do that is obviously there to stop us from spreading the disease overseas. And all you'd need would be some form of certificate stating that you don't have the disease and you're not going to therefore spread it when you go overseas. But the minister just, there was a blanket ban on travel overseas except at the discretion of the minister. And of course, politicians were allowed to travel overseas. But I had people coming to me telling me that they wanted to visit dying relatives overseas, or they wanted to leave Australia and spend their, their last few years in the country of their origin, and they weren't allowed to leave the country while politicians could leave the country. This is completely unfair and beyond his powers. There's a danger in acting beyond your, your powers as a minister in making regulations, and we saw that in the cattle ban, the live cattle ban well, case. Let's, let, yeah, let's not go back, back that far. Let's keep it to within, the, within co the pandemic. What about the lockdowns? Were they imposed outside the, the purview of Executive Council? Outside what we understood to be the purview of the Executive Council. I talk about the constitutional system. The, the federal constitution is really a compact of six self-governing colonies deciding to become one nation and allowed to do so by the colonial power. And the constitutions of those, the states have their constitutions too, but there is a constitutional system. And Bolingbroke at the time of the Glorious Revolution in Britain said this is that assembly of laws, customs and institutions by which the people have agreed to be governed. That's the important thing. That's how we all see the constitution. And such things as, for example, that you're innocent until proved guilty and that the onus of proof is on the crown in a criminal case, all of those are really part of our constitutional system, just as is our freedom of political speech, which the High Court says is implied in the constitution because the constitution was made on the basis that that would continue. So we've established that the idea or the process of executive council at both the state and federal level was pretty much trampled on throughout COVID. 
and as a result, people were locked in their houses, they were locked in the country, or in some cases locked out of the country, prevented from traveling interstate, and some people lost their jobs because they weren't vaccinated, and so on. So there, for one, is that's executive council. Now let's talk about the other constitutional aspect here, which is disallowance. This is when parliament votes against rules or regulations made by a minister. How often does disallowance normally happen, David? Well, it's a power which was normally allowed. It existed completely in colonial times by either house of parliament, not just the two houses, but either house could disallow it. And it's based on the proposition that to make a law, you need both houses of parliament. So why should a regulation be made effectively by the government? Why shouldn't both houses have that power? And that was the normal course of action in relation to And just to be clear, when you say a regulation, for example, let's say, for example, the regulation that you're not allowed to leave the country could, under normal circumstances of disallowance, could the Senate have called, called, a, called a meeting together, the Senate be called, and they vote on it and it be overturned? Is that what you're saying? That's right. And that wouldn't have occurred but for the fact that laws in recent years quite often now provide that the regulatory power is not disallowable. The whole purpose of parliament is not only to pass laws, it's also to scrutinize the executive to make sure the executive is not exceeding the powers which parliament granted to it under legislation. And we've had instances where the regulatory power goes far beyond that in the legislation. And I did mention that case, it's a long time ago now, the live cattle ban case, but that took until very recently for the people to achieve any remedy in the courts. And they're still waiting for their compensation, which you and I will be paying, the taxpayers, not the minister who had exceeded his power. He'll be enjoying his superannuation. So what you're saying is that some governments, federal governments, have avoided disallowance by passing laws that ostensibly allow, give them the power to avoid disallowance. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And there was a recent Senate inquiry where all of the MPs, both uh, uh, from the two principal parties, agreed that it was wrong to have so much disallowance. And they, they noted that in about 20% of the cases at the height of COVID, many of these were disallowable instruments, as they're called, regulations, decisions, and so on, which the parliament couldn't examine. So how can parliament be exercising its scrutiny? We pay MPs a lot of money to do this sort of thing. It's not just to pass laws and to make sure, or hopefully they read the laws before they pass them, but also to scrutinize what is being done under those laws. And we've had this situation where ministers are far exceeding their powers, as appeared in the live cattle ban case. I keep going back to that because a judge decided that this was, an, uh, this was a breach of the civil law. It was misfeasance in public office, but the minister didn't pay. The ministry doesn't pay. It's the taxpayers who will be paying the billions of dollars of damages which resulted from that appalling decision. Well, the live cattle export controversy is, is small beer compared to the pandemic because what's the likelihood of some judge in the future deciding that there was misfeasance over the COVID regulations and the taxpayer footing the bill for compensation then? Well, I can't see a judge 
refusing that. If a judge were properly briefed and uh, the case were properly argued, it is obvious that in many cases, I, I would say, that uh, the ministerial power was beyond that intended in the legislation. Well, that will have to be decided case by case. Of course, you can't make a, a blanket decision across all of them, but I think that there will be very good cases which will come before the courts. But of course, the culprits, the people who did this, will be enjoying their superannuation, their jobs for the boys and girls, and all those things that come to former ministers, the contracts of the communist Chinese and so on. All of that will be enjoyed by the former politicians, but it will be the taxpayers who will eventually pay for the, these sins. So what you've described so far this evening, David, is a, a compromise in the, the democratic standards, or. A, uh, lower than expected democratic standards than most people think. I mean, it, it, uh, we, we are not as democratically run as we think we are. Is that the point? Yes, and there has been a receding in the democratic power, the power of the people, because the people must be sovereign. That's the whole basis, surely, of a modern democracy such as Australia, and we're one of the six or seven oldest democracies in the world, but so much of our democratic rights have been trashed by the political class, and this has to stop. There has to be, obviously, a sound royal commission into what happened under COVID, and when I say sound, you'd have to have a royal commission of at least I would say three judges, you couldn't have it with just one judge because you get one view. And they'd have to be very highly respected judges, such as, for example, Ian Callanan, former High Court judge, Michael Kirby, former High Court judge, and that brilliant lawyer who's done inquiries herself and is uh, greatly respected for her role, Margaret Crineen. Well, that would be, that would be quite a formidable lineup. So uh, most people, think when they think about a Royal Commission into the COVID pandemic and the government response, think of what it cost, what was the impact on ordinary people. But as far as you're concerned, it, the term is, terms of reference should also include reasons or investigating why executive councils at federal and state level failed to do their job and why disallowance was sidestepped. Would that be a right? That would be right. And the, the Royal Commission should also have in its terms of reference how, if it finds, the, the, and I can't see how, why it wouldn't find it, how, if it finds that the democratic system broke down under COVID, how that will be repaired. And that's very important because if we go back to what we were, even in colonial times, we would have solved the problem. But we have retreated from that because the political class has made it easier for them. That's why, of course, they want this politician's republic, because the politician's republic, so-called republic, which they're proposing, isn't a real republic. It will be a republic on every model that we have seen so far. It will be a republic which increases the powers of the politicians and takes away the scrutiny and control of those politicians. Well, that's a good point to make because I need to talk to you about the republic. And this is my last question before you go. King Charles is clearly, David, profoundly disappointed that he can't join his friends at the COP27 meeting in Egypt this Sunday. So instead, he has invited some of his elitist environmental friends to drop into Buckingham Palace on their way. 
These are clear signs that the new monarch is politicising the role. Should we be worried, David? I wouldn't be too worried. The, obviously, the king has his own views. And uh, the king's role in the Australian constitution is to demonstrate that the crown is above politics. But it's also there to ensure that prime ministers and premiers do not preach, breach their uh, roles in relation to the appointment and dismissal of governors and governors general. Most of the powers of the crown in Australia are exercised by the governor general or the governors. And they're very important powers because those powers include the power to be the reserve constitutional guardian, as we saw famously in 1975, as we see regularly well, in the exercise true. of the- Well, that's, that's true and that's not in dispute, but hasn't Charles politicised the, the, the role in ways that his mother didn't? Well, certainly if he, if he argues the case in relation to the theory of global warming, certainly that would be inappropriate. But he would answer, no doubt, that this, he would see it as a non-political issue. And there is a factual matter there which would support that because every prime minister of every realm of which he is king and every leader of the opposition of every realm of which he is king supports this discredited theory of global warming. There are very few political leaders. I think Donald Trump was the last one who say this theory doesn't work, it's discredited, I'm not going to commit my country to this. But the whole political class in the West seems to have fallen for what Ian Plymer calls the biggest scientific fraud in history. Well, that's a view that you and I have. It's obviously not a view that Prince Charles has, but it's obviously not a view which a lot of people have. Well, that's right. Well, and there was a Prime Minister of Australia who once, who, who who described it as crap. Well, if, only, uh, if only we had leaders like that. Anyway, David, we've run out of time. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's David Flint of the Australians for Constitutional Monarchy. Well, the lockdown vaccine narrative is disappearing into thin air faster than a COVID-infected respiratory droplet exhaled into a Force 10 gale. And now the true villains of the narrative, the people who wished exile and even painful death on those who rejected the mandates, are humbly suggesting we should just, you know, forgive each other. American economist and author Emily Oster has written a piece for The Atlantic under the headline, Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. We need to forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark about COVID. Well, dear me, let's just start right there, shall we? Firstly, if an amnesty is the pardoning of crimes, then this amnesty can only be granted by the victims of those crimes. That would be the people who suffered for fighting back against the lockdowns and the vaccine mandates. So Emily is being a bit disingenuous by saying, let's declare an amnesty and we should forgive. The piece goes on to say, quote, the people who got it right, for whatever reason, may want to gloat, unquote. For whatever reason? How about we got it right 
because we knew from as early as March 2020 that the virus was never going to kill us, that we recognised the signs of tyranny from our reading of history, and that there were warning signs all over the vaccines because they were experimental and untested. And no, we're not gloating, Emily. That's what woke people do on the rare occasions they get something right. In December last year, Emily tweeted that shaming people into being vaccinated was unlikely to work, so instead they should be excluded from being able to travel or attend major events. We all have our own stories about that. Some people were shot in the back with rubber bullets by police on the streets of Melbourne for the crime of peacefully protesting. I missed my own mother's final few days and funeral thanks to the pointless lockdowns. But yeah, we forgive you, Emily. Not. But hey, at least she's admitting she got it wrong. So credit for that. Most other vaccine advocates, advocates are quietly winding back the zealous rhetoric now that the truth is coming out. But not Peter Hoisted, who calls himself Jack the Insider, a columnist at The Australian, who's usually worth reading and pretty amusing. But Hoisted was more belligerent than most during the pandemic, calling those who preferred not to risk taking an experimental vaccine nutty members of a cult and conflated them with anti-vaxxers. He doubled down last week saying, quote, no one lied about the vaccines, unquote. Sure, Jack, not even Emily Oster's falling for that one, mate. Chinese President Xi Jinping has consolidated an unprecedented third five-year term as leader of the Chinese Communist Party. What does this mean for the rest of the world? Well, let's talk to Daniel Tang of the Epoch Times, who's right across this topic. Daniel, welcome to ADH-TV. Thanks a lot, Paul, Fred. First, Daniel, this is not just about Xi receiving an unprecedented third five-year term, significant though that is. He's also installed some serious backers around him. Is that right? Exactly. So he's essentially done, well, what they call just loyalists are all surrounding him now. And even one gentleman who was responsible for the lockdowns in Shanghai, the, the really, really harsh lockdowns. So experts are saying that she is preparing really to you know push forward with what he was with things like Belt and Road Initiative and um, the global expansion sort of strategy that he's been kind of trying to really push in the last two or five years. So what's the significance of Li, Li Chang, I think it is, is the person you're referring to from Shanghai. What's the significance of his appointment? Well, there are, there are rumblings that, you know, Li's, Li's expertise in locking down residents of Shanghai could be useful if China or the Chinese Communist Party were to engage in a military conflict in Taiwan. So some of the commentators that I've um, spoken to, they've said that potentially what the what the Beijing could be planning is really training the Chinese people in in being locked down in how to handle a wartime situation and they're using Shanghai as a way to sort of like just condition the people I think that's the term condition them to sort of get used to being in that sort of environment wow so so in China they use the lockdowns to prepare the population for war 
And if you listen to the uh, people on, the, le- on the, fr- the conservative fringe in the West, they were using the lockdowns to prepare the pe- people for a, ca- a climate catastrophe. As they're not very optimistic times we live in, are they, Daniel? No, not, not exactly. And um, it, it's, it's a bit of an indictment on the state of, I guess, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of movement and, um, and democracies in general. Um, I think, you know, the West faces a very different set of challenges compared to Beijing. But I think in China, we can really see an example of what the future of the West could look like. I mean, China has taken some of these government authoritarian experiments to the extreme. And um, it seems to go through that cycle every 10 years. And so what we're seeing now is kind of, it's interesting. It, there, there are lessons in looking at China that we can learn in the West. Yeah, well, it's frightening that there are a significant number of people in the West who think that China's not a bad idea, the way they run China anyway. But let's just getting back to Xi and the people he's uh, installed around him, what does this consolidation of power in Beijing mean when it comes to Xi's uh, most uh, controversial ambition, that is to retake Taiwan? Well, I think, you know, the, the scenes we saw in the National People's Congress uh, two weeks ago when the former president, his, Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao, was essentially bundled out, uh, chaperoned out of the, the Congress which, you know, seemingly without his approval, his own approval, I think the big message really is um, to the world. And it's just saying, you know, don't expect us to moderate our tone. Don't expect authoritarianism to go away. Um, She's got his own motivations for the regime. And uh, it would really play well into his, his Belt and Road Initiative that I think we all know has been building up around the world over the last 10 to 15 years, as well as um, you know, those military incursions into Taiwan. So she has this focus on global expansion because he believes that, I think he believes that that's the only real way forward for the Chinese Communist Party, which is struggling with a lot of issues. And maybe for him, he thinks that's kind of the silver bullet to sort of push the regime past all those different problems they have internally. Well, so now that he's got the political power in place, how soon would you say is he likely to launch an invasion of Taiwan? It's hard to say. Some analysts or some military, U.S. military officials estimate less than five years. Um, But there seems to be a time frame that war game planners have worked out. So you see, the Taiwan Strait is quite a large body of water, and um, it's susceptible to typhoons and poor weather. And every year around September, October seems to be the time when the weather's the best. And some military planners are saying that if a conflict were to occur, that would be the time to target because that's the most, the safest time to really get naval ships, transport ships across that passage. Any other time, typhoon season would be just absolute, um, you know, insanity, really. So we've dodged a bullet for this year. <laughs> Maybe next year, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, what sort of resistance? Uh, yeah. What sort of resistance is he likely to? Are the Chinese likely to uh, meet with when they get to Taiwan? Mm. Will the Taiwanese defend the island? Um, you know, very strenuously? Yeah, I think if you can, if you consider the Ukrainian situation, how they defended themselves against Russia, I think multiply that by 10. Um, Well, it's a very similar situation in some ways, but I think as well, 
Beijing is going to face a very, very difficult task in trying to subdue the populace. Uh, Taiwanese are ferociously independent. Uh, they don't see themselves, even a regular Taiwanese general person you talk to on the street, they don't consider themselves as Chinese or mainland Chinese. So that DNA, that culture exists. Um, so when it comes to their homeland, I expect, well, I, I think that, you know, any sort of resistance would be very, very fierce. So China has the military power to subdue, but subduing the actual population and occupying it, that's a different story altogether, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, winning a war versus, you know, managing a country or managing a territory are two completely different um, propositions altogether. I think uh, one war gamer that I inter spoke with said that, you know, although people say China... Beijing could win a conflict in that region against the U.S. Um, most people think it won't. If the conflict goes on for too long, then Beijing faces a real problem. So they, they estimate about 60 days, uh, 60 days, 40 to 60 days. That's about the window Beijing has to really launch an effective assault. After 60 days, it becomes problems like uh, attrition, uh, morale start to kick in. Um, and when I talk about attrition, it means, you know, how long can your forces just keep fighting, uh, essentially? And given the state of the Chinese military, so keep in mind, corruption is still a very big issue in China today. Um, that could play a very big factor into whether the military can really last. 40, 40 <clears throat> excuse me, 40 to 60 days is not very long. How does it, just, you mentioned corruption there. How does that affect the military if it does? Well, there's this saying that uh, you don't join the Chinese military, you know, as a career path. You join it where you've got nowhere else to go in life. And um, that's the state of the Chinese military today uh, on the inside. So in Western countries like Australia or the United States, you join the military as a career path. You know, you might go in, train, study, and um, your, your life is set. But in China, it's a completely different, uh, I guess, a different attitude to the military. It's not seen as a career, ideal career choice for a lot of young people. It's actually seen as a place to go where you really can't go anywhere else. There aren't, when you've got no other job prospects. So when you consider that, you know, the, the, a portion of the People's Liberation Army is made up of these sort of soldiers, you've got to really think about idea, problems like morale. Yeah. Like will, and ability, will I, I, probably the, the same applies to ability. I mean, if, if it's a last resort, then you, to, to use, a, use a popular phrase, is scraping the bottom of the barrel to, uh, to man this technological equipment, aren't you? Essentially, yeah. I think um, we're really looking at potentially the Russian army, um, except just double, triple or quadruple the size of it. You know, the, the technology looks good on the surface and probably is very potent. Uh, but the people operating it, you know, I think there are questions around that. Are they as military capable? And there's another factor as well. A lot of wargaming demonstrations assume that the opponent is operating at their peak. So there's a lot of stories talking about how in during wargaming of that scenario in Taiwan that the U.S. would lose. But those wargames uh, are run based on this idea that Beijing's military is running at its peak with no morale problems, no supply, no logistical problems as well. So sounds like, the, sounds like the modelling sounds like the modelling they did to predict the deaths from COVID, and no one can predict the future <laughs> in these kind of ways. But just getting back to Xi Jinping, Daniel, D 
do, do the Chinese people actually warm to him? I mean, he, he comes across, obviously, to us as pretty stony-faced, but do, what do the Chinese people think of him? Obviously, there's one point four billion different opinions on this issue. Um, but I can say that some of the people that I've spoken to uh, and recent migrants from China, uh, one of them, one, one gentleman in particular, a 35-year-old, he's, he's just recently moved to Wollongong, Sydney, to study. And um, he, I asked him, so what, what, what spurred you to study? He just said, there's just too much control in China. It's just getting worse. And I think the populace sees that. Mm. And they attribute that to Xi Jinping, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I think they, you know, it's a different world now. It's a globalized world. People are receiving information, not just in China, but uh, from around the world. They see how democracies um, operate. And to quote this gentleman, you know, how can more control result in prosperity for China? In indeed, indeed. I mean, it's, it's not difficult to understand. Now, let's just have a quick look at Europe's relationship to China. Because I believe you think that Europe is going to be conflicted if a confrontation arises in, in East Asia. Because uh, it, Europe relies heavily on China as a manufacturing base and as a market. How, how reliant is Europe on China? Wow, yeah, it's uh, incredibly reliant and on so many different facets as well. So Germany and France are obviously the two biggest European markets. And... Um, Germany relies on China, well, critical minerals, rare earths, that's one of them. Um, the other issue is also some of Germany's biggest companies, uh, the automotive sector, Audi, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, their biggest markets globally are in China. So they probably sell around a million cars a year into that market. Mm. So how and would so, they respond yeah. in the event of a conflict? With great difficulty, <laughs> I, I assume. So, um, uh, yeah, at the moment, uh, Olaf Scholz is the first leader to German's chan Germany's chancellor. He's the first leader slated to visit China after Xi's reappointment to the head of the CCP. Uh, and then following him is Emmanuel Macron from France and Ursula uh, von, von der Leyen from, von der Leyen, the yeah. European, yeah, from the European Union. So it's quite an... And, and I think... Olaf Scholz from Germany has today just put out statements trying to, like, calm the U.S. essentially to say, you know, we're not playing both sides. We, you know, we are, we are a proper partner st still to the U.S. It sounds like they're responding to Xi's uh, third term by reassuring him that they're still friends. Is that right? Well, it's hard to say. I wish I had a crystal ball for that, Fred. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. There is, um, but... But Germany's situation in France, I think um, of all the great continental, you could say, powers, uh, Europe has traditionally been one of the slowest to respond to CCP. In the, early, in the early 2000s, it was very quick to criticize Beijing on its human rights issues. But in the last 10 years, Australia, Taiwan, Japan, um, US under the Trump administration, they've really, they have really been at the forefront of um, tackling Beijing and India as well. But Europe's in recent years been a lot slower in that regard, at least publicly. And I think a lot of that is due to the economic relationship. So France, you know, then one of their number one industries is luxury products, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and who are the number one customers for those sort of products? China. Well, as, lo as long as the Chinese keep mm -hmm. buying luxury products, maybe we're not in for too much trouble in the future. Daniel Tang, thanks for your time.
No worries. Thanks a lot, Fred. That's Daniel Tang of the Epoch Times, one of the most honest and fearless news websites in the world. I highly recommend getting a subscription. And just before I go, isn't it amazing that no matter how in favour the general public are when it comes to curbing illegal immigration, the lefties still can't fathom the idea of having strong borders. That is exactly what's happening in Britain at the moment. Australia has been through all this before. Rickety boats, deaths at sea, people smugglers exploiting vulnerable people and taking their life savings. It's a road to disaster. The very competent Home Secretary in Britain understands this. Her name is Suella Braverman. She's 42 years of age, Cambridge educated and read law. Braverman's parents came to the UK with very little in the 1960s from Kenya and Mauritius. Already though, because she's a conservative, the usual suspects are coming after her. And because she was originally a rusted on supporter of Boris Johnson, those within her own party are hostile towards her. In the parliament this week, Braverman said, quote, we need to be straight with the public. The system is broken. Illegal migration is out of control and too many people are more interested in playing political parlor games and covering up the truth than solving the problem. Good honor. It is reported the total number of migrants to have arrived from France this year is more than 33,500. This is the highest number since these figures began to be collected in 2018. In 2021, the total was 28,526 people. The idea that a supposedly self-respecting country should allow the organized people smuggling trade to exploit, exploit its borders and prey on vulnerable people is absolute piffle. And as I said last night, porous borders are like honey to terrorists. Calls for the new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to dump Suella Braverman from his cabinet have grown louder as she described this influx of illegal channel crossings as, quote, an invasion. Well, is she wrong? When you have tens of thousands of illegal migrants arriving by boat on the shores of southern England, what do you call it? The other problem is that many of these so-called asylum seekers are young Albanian men. And because of legal obligations and international treaty commitments, they know that the UK must consider an application for political asylum, however unfounded it might appear. Also, the low threshold from Theresa May's Modern Slavery Act means many claim to be victims of modern slavery. As Braverman said, quote, Albania is not a war-torn country, and it is very difficult to see how claims for asylum really can be legitimate. Yet last year, 55% of Albanian applicants were granted asylum in the UK. The acceptance rate for Albanians in Germany, Sweden, and many other EU countries was zero. This highlights that something is wrong with the UK immigration system and people are gaming it. What lefties don't understand is the electorate overwhelmingly supports integrity in borders and fairness when it comes to processing migrants. Just, at the, just look at the election of Georgia Maloney in Italy. She campaigned on the same thing. 
Politicians in Britain must understand that one of the reasons behind Brexit was that the public felt, in terms of immigration, that the status quo was not working in their interests and depressed wages. Nigel Farage has argued this. All I can say is, after hearing Suella Braveman this week, it is clear she harnesses the political courage required to tackle this problem and reverse the collapse in Britain's immigration policy. Well, that's all from me. As I've said all week, I'll be covering for the great Alan Jones again tomorrow night as he recovers from surgery. Alan, if you're watching, everyone here, and I'm sure all the viewers, wish you a full and speedy recovery. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you tomorrow at 8. Good night.